real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. All right, we're back with you again. And it's Nathan Romas with you. And today we have Linda Miller from Milken Training Center in Ontario, Canada. Uh, she is the Chief Executive Officer and Coaching Specialist at the center. And we'll be talking a bunch about firearms. So Linda has over 25 years of business experience, including consulting, business planning, management, marketing, and information systems. She has considerable experience in international small bore target shooting as a member of Canada's shooting team. She's won medals in the Commonwealth Games, Cuba World Cup, and Mexico World Cup. She was the first woman of only two to win the Ontario Lieutenant Governor's Medal for Shooting. And these competitions have a history of over 140 years, so quite the feat. In 20 or in 2002, Linda competed in F-Class and was the top female provincially, nationally, and at the World Championships. And we'll get a definition of F-Class in a little bit. Uh, she has also volunteered in local, provincial, and national shooting sports organizations. She does guest lecturing and provides courses to police, military, and civilians. And she's also authored several books, the latest of which, The Power of Mental Marksmanship, was released in January of 2010. So welcome, Linda. Thank you very much, Nathan. That sounds so impressive. I want to meet me. <laughs> That's about a third of uh, the accomplishments you have. So I was trying to figure out, you know, what am I going to put in here? But I was like, oh, all of it sounds really important. Um, so I just had to kind of pick and choose a few things. And I'll let you do most of the talking about, you know, the things you've been through. So first, first I want to say thank you, Nathan. I'm absolutely honored to be included on your podcast. Um, you're, you're doing you're doing God's work here, trying to reach out to ordinary folks and and figure out how best to get involved in uh, in shooting sports as a sport and uh, and all of the stuff that comes with uh, that sort of thing. Yeah. On your um, on your uh, first request uh, that you sent, you sent a lovely little outline of of what I'm to uh, to talk about and and uh, I. I really couldn't remember enough that I'm afraid Keith and I are both very much forward looking. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm so busy planning our next book. I've forgotten our last one, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but I put together a, a kind of an outline of how we got to here. And, um, I can just embark on that if you'd like. Yeah. Well, um, if you wouldn't mind too, uh, if you could kind of tell us about, you know, where you were born and, and maybe if you have uh, like a, a family history and involved in shooting, like what, what kind of led you into this? So you could kind of start at the beginning, give us a bit about yourself. That'd be great. Sure. Yeah. Um, actually my very first uh, uh, exposure to shooting was my dad thought that uh, his children, uh, he had no specific gender in mind, all of his children to be able to um, do certain things in life and uh, one of them was uh, shoot a gun and one was go hunting and he he wasn't big into either of them but uh, but he thought it was important so my first uh, shots were fired on a, on something a lot of your listeners will uh, will recall fondly from their youth as well it was a 22 cooey in my case a bolt action and uh, a little four, 410 shotgun and uh, dad wasn't a big big hunter. Uh, the, the area I grew up in was in northwestern Quebec in the mining district. And um, most people went hunting for deer and moose. And um, during the daytime, if they weren't snoozing, they were out looking for partridges. Um, and it was it was very common for people to take uh, a couple of weeks off. And in the, in the, at the end of the hunt, uh, people would drive into town and they'd have their, their deer uh, and moose uh, or at least the head of the moose and the and the bodies of the deer attached to the car in somewhere or other, and there'd be basically a parade downtown. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, yeah, it was it was a while ago. They don't do that now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so as the other thing I found out, kind of a little 
after the fact was that my dad was was um, interested in target shooting. I didn't know that, uh, but he used to impress people by um, by um, shooting a, a twenty two at a match, and it would be probably uh, one of the larger uh, uh, larger headed matches, and uh, would impress them all by by being able to hit it uh, so that it would light. Like an actual, like a match you would light a cigarette with. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in, in his case, it was probably one you'd light a uh, debt cord because he was, his hobby was, uh, mm-hmm. was uh, mining exploration and they, they did some blasting and drilling and stuff. So he'd have that kind of equipment. But anyway, yeah. So um, then, then there was nothing in my life to do with, with target shooting until many years later. Um, I was, uh, I was working in a, in a job that was a uh, high pressure. And, uh, one of my, my friends said, come with me, you need to have something else to do that will relax you. And, um, so he took me to a shooting range that may seem counterintuitive, but it worked out really well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the range was, uh, part of the Crown Sportsman's club and, and, um, they were very, very kind, very receptive. It was very much a male-dominated club, but it was, they were so good uh, with any newcomer. And um, they had me, um, they gave me a rifle and they gave me uh, some ammo and they said, here's your shooting mat, lie down here. And I had never heard of lying down to shoot. I had only ever shot standing and kneeling, I, I I thought they were having me on. I thought it was a joke. And then I realized, no, everybody here is lying down to shoot. Mm-hmm. So I went to position and uh, what I later learned was called a prone position and, uh, and started shooting. And it seemed like about five minutes later, they said, okay, Linda, you're done. Uh, time to go home. <laughs> Do you know what, like, what year roughly? Oh, roughly 85, 86. Okay. And, uh, so, uh, I, I thought that was awesome because it was just like, uh, getting really engrossed in a good book where you don't know about the passage of time. Everything just feels right and good. And there it was. And I was completely relaxed because I'd had this chance to focus on something so completely. Mm-hmm. And so I went back, you know, uh, once a week, they had it once a week, and I went back, and and eventually they uh, they said, "Look, we're going to a competition. We want you to come." I said, "No, nah, nah, come on now. I'm not good enough for a competition." He said, "No, no, no. You don't understand. The competition is team competition. We can field ten people on our team. We only have seven. The top five scores count." So you can come and shoot and enjoy and don't worry about it. it. It'll all be fine. You'll be in, you know, wherever you are, but you aren't going to replace anybody who has shot uh, any any better than you. Mm-hmm. So, oh, that's, that's a good way to get introduced to competition. And that's just awesome. So I went out. It was a lot of fun. I placed in the top five and uh, I was hooked. Absolutely hooked. Oh, and I like how you, you say um, that you went out there as like a, a thing to relax. And I've given this example in the podcast before. I go to my chiropractor, and the the one time they were asking, you know, what'd you do on the weekend? And I said, oh, I went out shooting. And I'm like, how's that relaxing? And they think like, you know, just the the noise of the gun or something is is startling. And I was like, no, I'm I'm relaxed when I'm out there. It's it's quiet, you know, outside of the the firearm. But it, I mean, it's it's quiet. You're talking to good people and. It's just a uh, good camaraderie around there. Absolutely. It's, it's a side of the shooting sport that only the insiders really understand. Mm-hmm. Very hard to explain that to an outsider. And that's one of the reasons I think that so many of us try very, very hard to get more people to experience it. Yeah. And, you know, definitely uh, there's so many different levels to it, right? There's different types of competitions. There's different things for skill levels. Um, but so you got hooked and this was at the Toronto Shooting Club, you said? Toronto Sportsman's Club, Sportsman's yeah. Club. They shooting and competitive casting. So was this right in the middle of the city at that time? Or is it still, is shooting mostly taking place in rural areas? 
Um, at that time, Transportsmen's Association had ranges all over the city. They were mostly, um, uh, they didn't own them. They, they were mostly ranges that were maintained by um, fire departments, uh, industry, mm. uh, all kinds of folks just had a small private range in, in indoor range. Okay. And so Transportsmen's used whichever ones they could get their hands on. And the one I was using was, was uh, within probably five minutes of where I lived, which was uh, uh, in the West End, mm-hmm. and they had them all over the all of the competitions, the team competitions we went to were all over town. Well, and I think uh, part of the reason that it's kind of maybe hurt the sport is you don't see that in the cities anymore. You know, everything's kind of been pushed out rural and like far out, so it's it's harder to get people motivated to drive half hour an hour to get to a range. Absolutely. Especially when it's their first time. Yeah. Yeah. So you get hooked. Um, where do you kind of, where's your life go from there with the shooting? Well, um, what happened then was, uh, I started, um, going to, um, several clubs. I was, I was so hooked. I wanted more range time. So I joined, uh, a couple of other indoor clubs and, um, and they all said, no, the real actions at, at the outdoor clubs in the summertime. So I joined some outdoor clubs and I just, I just shot where, whatever events I could find. And, uh, within, uh, three, two or three years, I was, um, a provincial champion and a national champion in what's called sporting rifle, which is kind of like a, a lightweight target rifle, uh, in small, in uh, 22 rimfire. And one of the, the events I went to uh, was a national um, level of that. That's how you become a national champ. And uh, the coaches from uh, the Olympic-style shooting, which was being held at the same location, came over and watched me. And uh, one of them, uh, Lois Wall, said said to uh, the national team, um, manager, go look at this girl. And so they started talking to me and and said, you need to get into Olympic-style shooting, which is the one that goes to World Cups and Commonwealth Games and Pan Am Games and, and eventually the Olympics. And so I thought that was pretty interesting. And because I joined these other clubs, I had actually met people who were shooting that kind of discipline. And were going to these events, so I knew what they were talking about. And one of them, uh, Sharon Bowes, was one of the most outstanding uh, rifle shooters that this country has produced. And she uh, she adopted me. It's the only way I can say it. Um, she she told me afterwards that she was not only inclined to coach and put back into the sport as we all are. Uh, but she was having trouble. She had done incredibly well at age 17. She went to the Olympics. She came seventh, which was just unheard of for a newcomer. But she couldn't do it again. She she couldn't put the pieces together. Mm. She once that she had a, a continuing dream where she would be in a closet all by herself with a jigsaw puzzle and she had the whole thing all together, but there was one one piece missing. So it, is that like uh, missing as in the Olympics, like she's looking to win, or is it just something in the training side of things? Well, both. Um, what she was missing was what was the what was it that made it possible for her to shoot well? And if she could identify it, then could she call it up and, and make it happen on demand? And she couldn't figure out what that piece was. Mm. So she spent over a year, maybe a couple of years, with me, what, develop, helping me develop my own process so that she might be able to find that piece. I don't believe she ever did, but boy, did she help me a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that's that's a big part of the community, right? Uh, is everyone's uh, that I've seen at any of the ranges everyone's very helpful and they want to talk, talk about 
the the firearms they have to the experiences they have. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. The other person that I met um, during that period of time and really, really put me on the road to coaching uh, was a man named Jack Clinton. He was the um, assistant manager and really the only good coach that the national team had. And uh, he he could look at a person in a position and say, you need to move your, you know, your middle finger over here or your toe over there, or tilt your head this way. Just one little thing that would make make all the difference. And he could see it. And I thought, what a marvelous skill. So mm-hmm. anytime I had to be coaching on the same line that Jack Clinton was coaching, I would be there and I'd just soak everything up. Um, I went to all the junior training camps. Uh, I ran the Ontario uh, provincial team uh, and and I took all of the uh, Coaching Association of Canada uh, courses and credits that I could to get properly certified and learn everything I could about coaching. And uh, that was that turned out to be a, a big motivator for me. Uh, the only way I really wanted to put back into my sport was through coaching. I unfortunately was also a really good administrator, so I ended up doing quite a lot of that. And, and I was by then working as a, as a management consultant, so I did a fair bit of that as well for my sport. But what I loved first and foremost was the coaching. So has your main career always revolved around uh, shooting sports to some degree? My, my main career, the thing that, you know, paid the bills was, was uh, everything to do with business. Um, I, my, my favorite parts of being in business were always consulting. I really enjoyed that. And I think it reflects on the coaching. There's a great deal of coaching involved in, in consulting to business successfully. Uh, you have to be willing to say hard stuff with a smile on your face and then and then give a fix or not just walk away and you know be smug about well, I got their number. Mm-hmm. No, no, you don't their number until you've helped them fix it. And I really love that part. so that was that was what paid the bills that and it, it paid them very well and and um, then every time I had an opportunity to coach on the side or if I could get a an employer who was willing to uh, to uh, support my efforts, then uh, that I take advantage of it. And you said, uh, for them, from your experience, because uh, usually women aren't in these sports; they're not, you know, the majority of people going there. But is that like, what would be the uh, kind of keeping people away from it and going into it? Is it just because historically women aren't usually the ones out carrying the firearms, or is there other kind of? reasons why they they might not be interested in it one of the things that i heard time and time again i, I ran a, a women's day at the range program for 10 years and my aim there was to um, really was to develop uh, female range officers and female coaches and but to do that of course we had a whole bunch of newbies uh females who had never been to a range females who were scared of guns uh, females who had been to the range once with their husband, father, boyfriend, but but wanted to see what it was really like and had been kind of intimidated by the original experience. So we had a lot of people come through. And the thing that I heard from them over and over again was, I just want to go and shoot and have fun. I don't want to compete. Mm-hmm. And and I I get that. I mean, I'm I'm obviously, I don't go that way. I obviously love to compete. But, but I understand what they want. They want to go out and play. They want it to be a play item. And, and the way most ranges are set up, the way the practices are set up, the way the, the kinds of people that you find on the range often aren't there to play. They're there to do something that they think is serious and important. Mm. And that suits women very well. On the other hand, I have to ask, most of the Olympic sports are in Canada are fewer than 10% female, even though the uh, international organizations have tried very hard to recruit women into the, into the sport. Uh, but Canada hasn't tried that hard. They, they reduced the funding, they made the equipment harder to get, all kinds of stuff like that. Our club here at the Milken Training Center, we run a 
club called the Operational Shooting Association. It is focused on not only operational type firearms, it is focused on operational type courses of fire. And I'm very happy to say that our uh, female participation is in around a third, about 35%. Oh, wow. What's What's the difference? Why do we have way more attracted to our operational club than than to Olympic sports? Hmm. What's the difference? I think it's part in our in the personalities of people that we've we've allowed to join us here. Um, we only want people who are are keen to share uh, whenever they're asked to share. We don't. I've I've told uh, people that some people that they're not allowed to come back. Oh, really? Because they're oh, they're here to pick up girls. The hell with you! <laughs> I, I have no patience for that whatsoever. Uh, you go go to some other place for that. Our girls are here because they're interested in 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 their own vision of excellence in a particular firearm sport. And if you're not contributing to that, then you're not welcome. Well, I would think there would be a, a there's a million other places that would be better for that. <laughs> Maybe places where you're not wearing ear protection and loud noises are going off. It's probably not conducive to conversation. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> but is are most of these leagues uh, like were they always kind of separated by male female, or is it just you kind of go and you just take part? It, in fact, almost all shooting until the Olympic level is is mixed. Um, the Olympia, the Olympic organization decided, uh, I don't know, 30 years ago or so that, that one of the ways they would improve female participation is to separate the awards program. So you can, you can go, in fact, in 1984, uh, Linda Tom won a gold medal in pistol shooting at the Olympics in Los Angeles. Mm. And, and, and it was, it was a very, very big deal um, because she's a female who won that. Meanwhile, and that one had been separated out, right? It was all women against women on, on the pistol range, Um, on the shotgun range. However, they hadn't been separated out yet. And so it was uh, all, all mixed female and male. And uh, Susan Natras, who had been a champion many times over in traps, uh, was now uh, not happy because she could only win women's traps. She used to be able to win the whole thing mm-hmm. over summer. So it, it was pluses and minuses about separating them out. This, one of the exposures I had that, that said, no, this is a really, really a good thing was... Um, uh, when I went to the Commonwealth Games in 1994, uh, we we won a lot of medals, the Canadian shooting team. And the biggest source of those medals was from the women because it was the first time the Commonwealth Games had separated out the women. And so we all had, we had our own award set. So the women's small bore prone, the women's 3T prone, the women's air rifle, they all had their own medal set. And so we would... And we did very well. The Canadian team did very, very well. Um, the Canadian team also did well in the male sports, uh, but but didn't win as many medals. Mm-hmm. So it it was a it the women's contribution to the the medal count for the Canadian team was very very high, and that gave us the best press we could probably expect, given that we're you know shooters in Canada. So. Over the years, have you seen like a, a steady growth in females taking part in shooting competitions or has it stayed the same or maybe even decreased? Um, I would say it's probably about the same overall. Um, I, I don't go out to very many other events except the ones that we run here. But just looking at the, at the score list, the prize list, that sort of stuff, I'd say it's still incredibly male-dominated. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't fault anyone for that. That's that is just a fact, um, and it makes it harder for women to enter because of that. And that's their mindset, not 
not the people that they would be joining. I, I remember learning years and years ago when I was taking some business course or other that they said that any visible minority won't feel like they belong until they have somewhere around 30% of a foothold. And um, so I, I think, I think that's, you know, it may not be the right number, but there's probably a number where you're you're just a minority until you reach this amount of mass, mm-hmm. and then you're so you know. yeah. Well, and there's so many. Um, I see lots of the leagues now. Like I go out to a range here, and they have a a, a women's league. Um, but I wonder too, like you're saying about separating people at certain points, and then and some other. Uh, leagues that don't do that i always kind of find that interesting like uh uh, you have gyms you know just a fitness gym and they'll have a women's side and then there's a men's side and it's maybe some of the women don't feel comfortable being around the men but i wonder too uh in separating people and this is just in general nowadays we have certain spaces where certain groups of people aren't allowed to go now and it's like well i don't know if segregation is the best uh, idea. Like maybe there's a better way to teach people to work together. Um, kind of like you're saying, I think a, a big part of it is, uh, and with your organization, is the 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 type of people you're bringing in to be coaches. Um, obviously, people in positions of trust and authority, you know, you have to be able to trust them um, and, and make sure they're there for the right reasons. So probably has a, a massive impact on whether people decide to come back or even come to your place at all in the beginning. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we have a reputation. Um, everybody in our little, our little area and arena knows that um, Linda will fight like a tiger if she sees something going wrong and if it has anything to do with other women, you're, you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and you're, you're the person who could probably do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, so- I'll use my club. uh so can you tell us a bit about the uh competitions you've been through uh and in your bio i mentioned f class uh some of the f class shooting you did but can you kind of explain maybe a few of the the terms like f class or small bore for anybody who's listening you know hasn't done any research on this stuff and then just what what things have you been a part of that really stand out in your mind sure the um the basic uh shooting disciplines are are uh, rifle and pistol. There are a bunch of other types of firearms that you can use, but basically it's either a rifle or a pistol. Within rifle, there's two um, fairly different categories. One is the uh, 22 rimfire, which is usually called small bore, uh, getting much more popular now uh, because ammo is so hard to get and, and so expensive when you can find it. Mm-hmm. And the other is full bore, which is center fire, and uh, most of the competitions are either in uh, 308, such as target rifle, or they are um, in unlimited or open uh, calibers, more efficient for long range. The F class falls in the latter group. Uh, there's a couple of different types. One one is in fact a uh, uh, a 308 revisited uh, with um, with a scope and a bipod and that sort of stuff. And the other is an open category, and it's it's any caliber pretty much that the range can is licensed for. And the the bipod is replaced with a, a machine front rest, and it's um, a very very heavy gun. It's not one you would carry out in the field at all. It's very specialized for very tiny. Yeah, keep it coaching me here he says it's a it's a it's also also sometimes called prone bench rest Mm -hmm. uh because it's it's so catered to making small groups that's its number one mission okay so i i have uh shot all of those at one time or another um my my fondest memories are probably in small bore it's uh, it, there's a prone competition as well as a three position prone kneeling and standing competition, and it's supplemented in most competitions with a standing air rifle, a 177 air rifle. Uh, very very demanding 
really, really tiny, impossibly tiny uh, targets for the type of competition it is, but uh, very rewarding as well. And of course, it's the one that you can you can go to uh, to international competitions in without any problem at all. Like you have to do the work, but there's lots of them. Are you talking like uh, uh, crossing borders with the firearm, and depending on the country, they got you know all their different rules and what you can bring in. Yep. Okay. Yep. It's it's gotten to be more of a challenge. It used to be easy to go between Canada and the states. Uh, you you didn't really need very much in the way of paperwork or proof or of intent or anything like that to, to take rifles in. You need a little bit for a pistol, but not. It wasn't a big deal. The after after nine one one, they nine uh, eleven, they uh, they tightened everything up uh, both outbound from Canada as well as inbound to the state. It's very difficult quite quickly. And they didn't have a smooth process. It's since actually gotten easier because they've smoothed out the process. They've, they've realized that one competitor taking two guns down to Georgia to shoot a World Cup isn't a threat uh, and doesn't need the same degree of paperwork and, and uh, um observation that uh you know somebody importing a, a train load might need well and so i'd imagine that they got way bigger guns and and full auto in some of those states and they're worried about a 22 <laughs> a, a 22 rimfire yeah uh, like ooh, but <laughs> but there were other countries uh prior to 9-11 that had very strict regulations mainly because their own citizens weren't allowed to have arms so when we went to uh, Mexico City to shoot a World Cup, uh, we were greeted by the military. We were asked to surrender our guns and our passport, uh, and it just went on and on. Um, there were there were other places like that. That was the one that really struck me. Havana, Cuba, that was another one. It had very, very, very tight regulations and uh very difficult to get in um, in Havana. I very nearly didn't get in. My my coach and my guns were on one side of the border, and I was on the other. And they weren't happy with me because I I don't know. I think I had I think I had changed my glasses, or maybe gone from glasses to contacts, or something. I didn't look right to them. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they should see driver's licenses now. <laughs> you never get in. Yeah. There. <laughs> Well, yeah, and they, you know, in those days, you, you needed a passport internationally, but you didn't need a passport to go to the states. Mm-hmm. You know, just your ordinary driver's license, and and if you ever wanted to get your guns back into Canada, then you probably want a green card. But that was <laughs> that was easy, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, what are some of the um, places you've been? So, you've been Cuba, Mexico. Have you traveled anywhere else for competitions, whether shooting or coaching? Um, most of my travel was actually business travel. Hmm. Um, I, I consulted all over the world. Uh, my favorite places were probably, oh, in both cases, I've, I've shot, coached, and consulted in Australia. And I, that's probably my favorite place in the whole world. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. We, uh, Sweden, yes. Yes. We, <laughs> we had a nice trip to Sweden, um, taking the, uh, the SISM team, that's the... International uh, Sports and Military. Yeah, it's it's a military sports team. Uh, it's a military sports event that is uh, very much like uh, uh, an Olympics for military people. Okay. And uh, I was coach for that team. Uh, and uh, Sweden, was it was a lovely destination. I, I liked it a lot. So how do you get, in, how do you get involved in uh, the military team um that one i think it was through originally through the small bore and then through keith because i was already fairly well known that was uh when was that that was the mid 90s i guess i was already fairly well known as a qualified uh, small bore coach and they had a small bore team but they asked me because keith prevailed on them they asked me to coach the pistol team which was hilarious because I had, you know, I, I did have coaching credentials for pistol, but nothing like my small board credentials. Mm-hmm. 
and three people board. That's right. They asked me to, to coach that. But the guy I actually spent most of my time with was a small board guy. Okay. He's a relatively new team and he was very um, uh, fragile emotionally and, and didn't have a lot of technical knowledge. So I, I spent quite a bit of time with him. And uh, coached him to a personal best. I coached Keith to a personal best in full bore at that one. I don't think I did that much for the pistol team. When you go over as, um, uh, and you're consulting, what exactly are you doing like as a, a consultant? And is this where it kind of gets into most of the, the mental management of things? Um, it, I didn't mean to imply that I consulted to the team. I coached for the team. I consulted when I went on trips mm, okay um i did i did consulting for sports organizations but that wasn't part of you know trips to games and things like that that was uh on the ground usually right here in canada oh, okay um but the yeah yeah so uh the consulting didn't travel with the team so when, when if we talk about your consulting side of things uh what are you consulting with people on um, currently, I am not doing any consulting on purpose. Um, I've tried very hard to get a step away from um, everybody else's business and focus just on our own. Mm-hmm. So our our own business is all about shooting, uh, both professional uh, professionals such as yourself as well as competition shooters. Uh, but I don't do any business consulting anymore. Unless I'm forced into it, <laughs> it 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 comes through though because we are often asked to do um, custom courses, and usually, uh, what we find when we when we talk about what they want, it's what they can defend to the boss, but what they need is usually some very basic uh, fundamentals in technical skill and a whole lot of mental skill. And it's not that they don't necessarily have the mental skill. It's often that they don't realize that this is one of this shooting sports or professional shooting. This is where you need to apply what you can do uh, to, in your mental skills. So we give them techniques that, that demonstrate to them, okay, here's where you use this tool. Okay, now we're going to play a game where you get to use this tool and shoot some shots. You know, that kind of stuff. So they start to understand the application of mental skill to the shooting process. And this is with police organizations and, and military? Uh, police, military, and competition shooters. And competition, okay. Uh, we did one for uh, an archery club. Uh, they, they're very, they, were very, they had a great junior program. They're up near North Bay, they had a, uh, which is in uh, northern Ontario. They had a great junior program, and uh, they had lots of juniors going to pretty serious level competition and they were afraid the juniors didn't, they were good technically, but maybe didn't have all the mental skills to, to keep themselves together and show how good they could be technically. That old, you know, on demand kind of thing. And um, so we, uh, we designed a um, mental training course for them, specifically for them that would suit both the adults and, but especially the juniors in the, in the club. And uh, we had a wonderful weekend with them. But we also, we've done the mental training for uh, a lot of military teams because there there have been um, quite a few uh, teams, both at the um, at the uh, smaller levels as well as at the national level, uh, you know, regimental or brigade level uh, groups, as well as the uh, national teams that go to Bisley and other things like that's one of the places that Australia peaked up again in my life was that we took a a military competition team to uh, Australia. We took them several times to Bisley, England, which is kind of the mecca Mm -hmm. of that type of. Um, And and we spent a lot of time uh, on the mental side of stuff with them. When so when you're doing uh, you're working on the the mental side, what, is, what does that kind of look like? Can you kind of walk us through a bit of the process, what you focus on or what you're telling people? What we uh, try to do is to get them to examine themselves first 
and figure out what things are they doing that are helping them and what things are they doing that are um, risking their own ability to perform well. And one of the things we find, and and it's true of all the groups, but it's absolutely Crayola clear uh, with police groups, is that they they like to um, say negative things about themselves and each other. Hmm. So uh, one of the big examples is uh, is the um, the guy the guy who does something wrong. Um, she hears about it. And then everybody else talks about it for days and days and days. Teases them. Oh, it's all in good fun. Oh, we're brothers. La la la. Until somebody else does something wrong, and so they start in on him. Now, being that I'm I'm a female and I have a good relationship with our police students, and I try to present as a mother figure to them so that they will feel comfortable telling me anything. I have had cops come up to me and say, you know, you're right. Not only does it not do the person who's being victimized by this any good, it hurts all of the group because they're hearing it over and over again. And he says, you know what? I've been at the wrong end of that one and it really hurts. Mm -hmm. Shit. So much for the blue brotherhood. Mm-hmm. Get a grip, guys. Yeah, so we got to we got to get that turned around. So one of the things we do is that if anybody says anything that starts smacking of that that going in that direction, um, I give them a look, and Keith says, "You got a better way of saying that." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know it's definitely the um, we'll call it like uh, well not maybe hazing, but yeah, there's a, there's a lot of that in our job. <laughs> yeah, there is. And it's, and it's not making you stronger. Mm-hmm. One, one of the questions, uh, one of our assistant coaches asks, uh, and bless his heart, I've tried to start asking it as well, is what do you want more of? What is it that you want more of that will lead you to a better place, a better performance, better, stronger capabilities? What is it you want more of? Do you think any of that crap hits that list? Mm-hmm. Because it's all detrimental. It's not worth. It's not even close to what advertised. It doesn't help the Blue Brotherhood at all. It harms every one of you. So we try to get rid of that. So has anybody ever followed up with uh, followed up with you after you, you know, put on a course or uh, helped them in any way and said, you know, this has had a... a a big impact in their life, whether it's professionally or maybe even some of this stuff that you're teaching them shooting firearms translates into their personal life. Um, have you ever had that? Yes, many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, two quick examples. One is we had a, uh, we were teaching an RCMP course and uh, all our RCMP guys, all that knew each other, all of the headquarters sniper group. And um, the one fellow said, I, I'm, can you give me some advice? I have, I coach a really junior hockey team, like five, six, seven year olds, something like that, real youngsters, you know, maybe a little older than that, maybe seven, eight, nine, something like that. Um, he said, they've, they've never, they've never had a goal all season. They've never had a goal. And, uh, there's, you know, it's hard to keep them enthusiastic. Um, but we know for sure that if they don't have the enthusiasm, no goals are coming soon, right? So he said, what can we do? So Keith said to him, well, here's what you need to do. He says, I don't know anything about hockey. You know, so bear with me and, and make the example right for your, for your age group. Um, you need to have a plan. The kids need to have a plan. Just one plan. So Joey is going to pass from the blue line to the wherever to Jimmy. And Jimmy's then going to pass across the ice over to... Uh, Todd and Todd is going by then Mike will be in the lineup to make the goal and Todd's going to pass to Mike and Mike's going to take a shot on net. Simple, like five moves, you know, and, and it may not work every time, but at least they have a plan. They know what they're doing and they, they understand how it's supposed to work. So that's what he did. He went in with one plan. That team got their first goal ever. Wow. 
and it's it's all in the mind. They had the skills. They just didn't have the the brains organized, right? Mm-hmm. The the other one is a very much more recent one. It was a, a police woman who uh, came on our uh, police sniper course. I guess just sniper one. We do two courses. One is learn the skills, and two is we're going to test the daylights out of you, and you're going to be challenged beyond belief. Um, I think it was the very first one. And one of the things that we talk about there is um, is self-talk. Uh, it's that little voice in your head that describes to you what you and the universe, how you're related, uh, how, how you navigate in the world, what you do and think about yourself, that kind of stuff. You know that little voice? Mm-hmm. You know, um, sometimes that little voice is helpful and sometimes it is not. And so you, uh, you need to... Um, Figure out, you need to listen to it, actively listen to it, figure out what in that little voice is helping you and what little in that little voice is hindering you. Because some of those things were put in your brain when you were two or three years old. You don't need them helping you anymore. They've outlived their usefulness. They're keeping you from growing and you need to get rid of them. You need to replace them with things that will help you. Very much like this, what do you want more of? Um, so this uh, young lady at the end of the, and we do a fair bit of work on getting that replacement to work. We do some written work, we do some oral work, we do some work on the range to to help people understand what it is they need to fill their brains with in order to perform well and how they control that process. You're in charge of what's in your brain. So, you know, let's let's give it some good material. At the end of the course, we have a, a debrief, and, and the question of the debrief is, what is it that happened to you this week that you want to remember forever, do again next time? What was important to you? Did anything turn a little light on for you? And she said, it was that self-talk. She said, I never realized that I was, I was my self-talk was saying that it's unusual for a woman to be able to be a sniper. Yeah. So I heard, and I changed it, and and thank you, because <laughs> it's true of anything. It's not not just a woman. It's not just a sniper. That voice in your head is controlling how far you can leap, and you need to know what it's doing for you, or not for you. I find it all, uh, you know, everything kind of seems to be interconnected with mental management, mental health. And even doing martial arts growing up as a kid and, you know, whatever percent people want to put on, but it's like 90% of it's mental. Yep. Um, a lot of the stuff I do on the day to day, mental. Oh man. And, but people, I think just being human beings, you know, most of what we, uh, sense is through our eyes. So if we can't see it, we can't really believe it or we can't understand it. So it's such a, such a disconnect from the way people think. And I, it seems like it's, you know, maybe in the last 10 years, there's been a big push toward really thinking about the brain and how it works and how people function and operate. Um, but yeah, a lot of stuff you're saying is kind of resonating with me. Um, one of the things I was uh, wondering too, is speaking about, uh, you know, having that little voice in your head from way back when, do you run any courses uh, for kids? Not specifically for kids, but we do have kids. Um, 13 is usually about the, the point where they're interested in this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And 13 is when they can get their uh, farms, their junior farms license. So that's usually about when we pick up with the kids. If the parents bring them earlier than that, that's great. But we don't have any specific you know, outreach for munchkins kind of programs okay yeah i've seen like the odd course for kids Mm -hmm. uh but yeah i I, you know what i couldn't tell you what age it started at i just i've read like a you know a paragraph or two on some of the courses but i thought uh and, and in speaking with some people who've been on the program that you know it's probably one of the the more unique and interesting things to get into you know vast majority of kids are going to play basketball, play hockey, you know, whatever it might be, you know, you know, your big four sports. 
But to get into something that's really distinct and unique uh, and also translates into a lot of life skills down the road, uh, I just thought, you know, shooting, shooting sports, there's competition in it. There's camaraderie, um, learning how to be calm in high stress situations. And as much as it's a, a team sport, there's also a very big individual component to it. Um, so it, I feel like it kind of covers all the bases of making you a, a well-rounded person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much. In fact, I did, um, um, I was involved as a coach with the Durham Regional Elite Athlete Program. And I, I did a, a seminar for the entire program, which is probably a couple of hundred kids. And, uh, you know, it's one of these situations where you get a broad range of interests and ages and what are you going to do that will help reach out to all of them? So I talked to them about stress. Uh, they, there was a very high percentage of them that thought that they were having to endure a great deal of stress. And a lot of them were quite worried about it because um, they didn't feel they had the tools to deal with it. So I said, well, let's, the first thing is let's measure the stress. Let's find out whether what you're dealing with is, uh, is unique to you or unique to everyone, or is it uh, something that you, you know, as you age, you will gradually get better at, or is it something you need a, a tool for? So I just used a standard test that said, you know, here's how you measure the the general stress in your life, and here's a number we can put to it. And if your number falls in this range, then probably life is is quite normal for you. And don't panic. We we have things to make you more comfortable, but you don't need treatment. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, teenagers are quick to to think they need treatment because right? it's all new to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so we did that, and and that. Uh, really helped that group, but it was an unusual group of kids because they were all elite athletes. They were they weren't all shooters, but they were all in some elite athlete program. And that um, so then we just talked to them about okay, what your standard level of stress is versus the situational stress that you might feel in a competition or in a in a, any kind of situation where you've got to produce. Um, and we talked then about the tools that you could use, you know, things like combat breathing, things like uh, relaxation techniques, um, all that that sort of stuff. Standard sports fair for for uh, fighting athletes. Um, one of the things I was uh, kind of wondering too was, have you ever had any strange requests? So doing, you know, you do a lot of consulting, uh, or used to do consulting, and even now with your your current business. Uh, do you ever get like asked to work on movies or I guess consult for that or, or teach people how to shoot properly if they're making a movie about a sniper, say? Uh, no. No, nothing's ever no. come up? Uh, there are, we've had requests from movie people, but not for that. Um, but I think most movie people think they have their experts. Mm. And, and, uh, we know some of them, and some of them genuinely know their stuff, but they tell the movie people what to do, and the movie people do something else. <laughs> yeah. So um, we, we have very little interest in getting involved, because <laughs> we wouldn't like that. <laughs> well, I just... You know, don't uh, want wrong. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I think, too, um, you know, a, a, a punch in real life doesn't translate well onto screen like you wouldn't see it happen or something. So yeah, they, they definitely um, kind of glamorize certain parts of it or, or do up other parts. So it's not, yeah. If you're looking for the authenticity, it's definitely not in movies. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. In fact, when we, uh, when we uh, teach our snipers, the fundamentals, we bring in examples of movies that, that don't do it right. And, and tell them they need to keep an eye out both the news, the news media, as well as the movies they're all fiction Mm -hmm. they're all they're all put a light on a certain way so see if you can pick out what's fact and what's not so um maybe we could talk a bit about your current business with milkoon um can you kind of tell us a bit about how you started that and kind of where it's grown to today okay so in 1994 um i was at the commonwealth games and so was keith we had never met because he was in a completely 
different segments of the shooting sports. And uh, we uh, we did meet there, though, because the Canadian team is all one team. And at some point, we were talking about um, what we'd like to do. And I uh, said something about, I'd like a property big enough to get locked in. And Keith was thinking, ah, that'd be about the right size to build a range. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so uh, it just got worse from there, honestly, Nathan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Keith is, um, well, you've met Keith now. You you did the uh, the podcast with him last week. And um, he uh, he's a driver driver. And you may have noticed from so far today, I'm a driver driver as well. So mm-hmm. we like to get things done. And um, Keith, uh, there were there were several things I noticed about him right away, other than the fact that he was a, a shooter and a darn good one. Uh, one was that he was a great storyteller. Everything he did, he told a story about. Every time he wanted to get anything across, there was a story. And I thought this is a skill I'd like to have. Um, I wonder if I can learn it just by, you know, listening. Mm-hmm. And uh, then within a couple of, well, I guess the year after the Commonwealth Games, we went to um, the provincial full bore rifle uh, championship and Keith was competing and I had no role there other than to, you know, just be arm candy. <laughs> and um, he said, as my coach well don't tell me I have a job and then don't let me do it so uh, I was doing my darndest to to, um, coach him with with the skills that I had that it would apply to his game and of course that's almost all mental uh, because the technical side of his of that game is considerably different from my area of expertise so at the end of that he um, he had some uh, he had some challenges during that match. It was a three-day match, and the first day he he got totally distracted and didn't do well in one of the matches and had to be kind of brought back from that and refocused and set out again. And, and then uh, there was another big distraction during the other matches, and it just went on and on. And, and I felt like I was, I was, you know, I had a dog on one of those springing leashes, and I, I couldn't always pull hard enough. And... Anyway, at the end of the three days, he, he won the championship, and it, it's a pretty big deal. So he said, we should write a story about this. So we sat down with a computer uh, at opposite ends of, of the house and wrote out our view of what happened over those three days. And then we swapped papers. And, and it was a wonderful mirror image, uh, each of us, what we had learned and what we had, the way we viewed what had gone on. And so we submitted it to um, Precision Shooting Magazine. And Dave Brennan, bless his heart, who was the editor at the time, he said, this is among the finest writing in the sport I have ever seen. And he published it. And that was kind of the beginning of us working together as, as authors, as coaches, as uh, realizing that that we had something we could work on here, so we immediately started looking for property. Uh, finding a property that you can have a range on in Ontario is kind of a big challenge because there's there's almost nothing that's clear that isn't isn't farmers field, and you can't put ranges on farmers field. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't, you can't get approvals for ranges in most places in this in this province. It's very very challenging. I drool when I see my friends out in Alberta who, uh, you know, put a range out in the middle of a, of a, between two mountain ranges. I don't know. It's it's just, you know, long distances and there's no trees and, oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Our biggest range is 600 meters and there's trees everywhere. In fact, we have people in here today trying to cut them back to keep them from growing in on the range. Um, so we, um, we started looking for property. We spent a couple of years. We finally found something. We bought it. And then we started trying to put in ranges. And, and it was a, a fairly long process to make it all happen. Uh, through that time, I guess in about 2001, 
I quit working in Toronto and came up here full time. So Keith had been doing all this by himself with the only, you know, a little bit of help from me sometimes on the weekends when we weren't at a shooting match. And uh, most most of my salary going towards, you know, paying the property, paying for the property. And uh, so in 2001, we, we were both here and then could really start doing stuff. I didn't have to take vacation days to run a course. I, this was my job. And um, so that, that worked out really well. We, we um, spent probably the next 15 years just uh, trying to grow the business. We got really, really good relationship with the cops. And the, the competition shooters, of course, uh, all knew us from our competition days. Uh, but the cops was a bit harder. Uh, they, they had to learn to trust us, and, and that just took some time. Um, but, but it worked. It worked. We had enough offers. Uh, and and so we ended up with a, a wonderful uh, little business. And on the side, we both like writing. So um, I had written the the wind book for rifle shooters pretty much by myself with Keith's help to make sure I got it right. But it was mainly so that I knew I could figure out whether or not I really understood reading the wind. And that turned into uh, a classic among competition shooters. Uh, the next one was The Secrets of Mental Marksmanship. And um, that one uh, that one is, is annually very popular. Um, and uh, in, the, in the middle of there, that somewhere, we, uh, we went to a seminar. Have you ever heard of Dave Grossman? Oh, yeah. He's, uh, of course, the author of On On Combat and On Killing. On Killing, yeah. Yeah, as well as many other uh, books. He is um, he's also the guy that goes all over the world, but especially on this continent, uh, doing the Bulletproof Mind seminar for uh, police and military. And one of our friends had organized him to come and speak to the federal penitentiary guys. and. And he asked us if we'd like to come down and hear that lecture. And uh, we said, yeah. And so we went down and, and our friend uh, said, um, I'm really sorry, but I can't take uh, Mr. Grossman, Colonel Grossman, out for dinner on Saturday night. And I and I should be doing that. Uh, he said, would you mind very much taking him out for me? And we're like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we... Uh, we we took him out to dinner and we brought him a couple of our books and and uh, had an outstanding time. He really is the real the real deal. I mean, he's he doesn't have two personalities. He has one. What you see in the bulletproof mind seminar is solid solid Colonel Grossman. And about a year or so later, he um, he said um, emailed us and said. Uh, you guys, uh, I'm thinking about taking my son uh, on a shooting vacation. Do you guys have a safari course? And we said, yeah, yeah, sure, we have a safari course. And then we started going to every place we could go to learn about safaris and and what the what, what the people that run them think and what they want their their uh, their um, hunters to uh, come with, what skills and knowledge and stuff like that. And we went all over the place and had a great time doing it. And Keith won a safari. So we had to go on that, and you know, mm-hmm. so it went all very well. Uh, but in the end, the, the, the reason I'm bringing the thread up at all is that in the end, uh, after we had this very course for for Dave Grossman, he said, um, "I'm going to make you rich and famous." And I said, I "Don't much care about famous, but rich I can latch on to." <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> so uh, what the upshot of that was that he asked us to uh, write a book that is being called On Hunting. And it's um, he's really, uh, yeah, honestly, I, I did all the writing except for some very uh, specific parts of it that, uh, that he did and Keith did. But uh, it's uh, very much a Linda book in, in every way except that Colonel Grossman is the big name here, so we're going to use his name. Uh, Keith is the great storyteller, so we're going to use his great stories. Uh, and I, I kind of put all the pieces together that knitted it. 
Um, but that book, uh, we're going down to do um, the audio version in uh, January. And uh, that book is uh, on pre-order at Amazon right now. So we're thrilled a bit. It's kind of the, my, my whole career actually started in writing. When I was five years old, I wrote a local newspaper for our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the last thing I'm going to do when I'm 101 years old, which is the target, is, is put a Z end at the end of my last book. And <laughs> mm-hmm. well, that was one of the things I was going to ask is, uh, so the book, The On Hunting, will be coming, is the book itself out right now and then you're just recording the audio? No, it's uh, the book's on pre-order, so it'll be uh, out okay, in sorry, March. pre-order. Okay. And uh, yeah, and uh, we'll be doing the audio, trying to get ahead of the publishing as much as we can. And are your other books? I'm usually asked this at the end, but since we're already talking about all that now, are your other books available on Amazon, or is there a, a better place to find them? No, Amazon is uh, is the best place to find them. Uh, you'll see there that Secrets of Mental Marksmanship is in fact published by Dave Grossman now because our original publisher, um, Paladin Press, went out of business. Uh, but you can get it directly from Dave's office or through Amazon. Just handier to look in Amazon. All right. Well, is there anything you think we didn't get to? I'm kind of looking through the list here of the, the topics and I think we touched on everything. We got into more in depth on a lot of stuff. Um, very interested in your business uh, and uh, the courses that you guys put on. And at the uh, when we do put up your episode, we'll put up a link to your website so people can check that out. But uh, was there anything else you think we missed? Um, probably, but I think we've we've covered enough. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I can always I can ask a lot more questions, but um, uh, I think the biggest thing that uh, uh, we were talking about that I kind of got out of this was just kind of focusing on one the mental health, mental or mental management side of things, but also just being a good person and trying to be uh, a good coach or trainer or teammate. So whatever it might be, whatever your discipline is. Uh, you know, just trying to be a good person. Yeah. Yeah. You, you really need to have you on your side. I, I remember somebody said to me when I was quite young, if you're not your own best friend, who the hell else will be? Yeah. Well, that's good advice. Yeah. So, um, all right. Well, I'll finish the recording here. If you could just hang on the line for a minute uh, and I'll say bye offline. Terrific. Thanks, Nathan. Thank you.